This is John Williams reaching once again out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? I don't like the way you say old, citizen. Funny you should mention that. Welcome back, President Jefferson. I trust you're well. I am well. It's it's planting season in Monticello. That's always a source of great optimism. Speaking of your age, um, there's a few things I want to talk to you about, but I'll just start with this one. I don't know if you're aware of this, but a man in Dallas has a lock of your hair. And according to the Telegraph of London today, he is going to auction it off tomorrow. You and I are speaking on a Friday. It will be Saturday the 14th of May 2016 that a lock of your hair will be auctioned off. They're expecting it will reach $3,000, which I'll be honest with you is a little less than I thought it would bring. I mean, it's your DNA in there. I don't know how you feel about all of that. First of all, I'm surprised. Um, I would want it authenticated as my hair. I'm not sure I like the idea of my hair being auctioned about to the highest bidder. I'm a very, very private man, and I, I can't for the life of me think why anyone would find that interesting. You know, you're, you're sounding like someone who's talking about Roman relics from the Christian tradition. No, I'm you a are. secular president of the United States who re- lowered taxes and reduced the size of the army. I don't think I deserve to have my hair preserved as some sort of a token of the of the founding generation. Well, those two things, at least the first one, lower taxes, we might argue about where how big the army should be, but I think that's the sort of thing we should erect a monument to, anybody that can lower taxes in America. Well, the other thing that worries me, as I imagine you can anticipate, is if they have my DNA, you know, there have been all these rumors about a relationship with a slave woman, and they've been, been unable to pin this on me because they haven't had direct DNA. They've had to use collateral DNA. I would hate to see uh, some sort of uh, scandal-mongering with respect to my follicles. (laughs) Well, that ship has sailed, um, and and I won't even take you down that road. I know you're not comfortable with it. Certainly not. I will say this, and I found this fascinating in the story I read about it today. It said that in your era, of course, there was not photography, and so the passing of a lock of hair was seen as somewhat traditional. It is a way to remember a person. That's and true. I, I suppose that would still work today, but I could see how a lock of hair would be more important in those circumstances. And to be honest with you, I would be honored or flattered. I I think it would be fantastic to have a, a lock of your hair. Well, you have $8,000. Uh, three. I got news for you. I only need three. Well, I mean, there you go. Uh, this would, I would rather have you have it than it pass into the hands of some Hamiltonian. <laughs> I actually thought uh, when you passed, I guess they clipped some of your hair. Your physician did it, passed down the hands of his family through generations. And this one guy in Dallas, Texas, of all places, has it. And he's going to auction it off. And I'm thinking... Heck, I bought dumber things for $3,000 than your hair. <laughs> well, Maybe this I is sh- interesting. You know, the, a couple of things about this. First of all, I had a lock of my wife's hair. When she died in September of uh, 1782, I kept a lock of her hair and folded up in a small piece of paper, and I placed it in a hidden cabinet in my uh, suite of private rooms at Monticello, and it was discovered after my death, that I had kept this all of this time. So it was quite common for us to keep locks of hair 
in that era. But also, isn't it true in your time that with this DNA, you could recreate a dinosaur or a mammoth? I mean, theoretically, you could recreate me. I thought about that. I'm I'm sure the DNA is um, sufficiently damaged, et cetera, et cetera. But well, yeah. damaged by politics, <laughs> damaged by the, the incessant attacks on me as an atheist and a free thinker and uh, someone who had been Frenchified in his, his tastes by my five years' residence in Paris. By the way, just against all, you know, the backdrop of the current scene versus your day, I have to tell you the... Um, the contrast between how you and your colleagues ran for president and how we run for president today has never been more stark. Um, here's the latest wrinkle on that. Um, should the candidates release their income taxes? Certainly not. There were no income taxes in my time. But Well, you know, personal no finances. Personal the public finances. has no right to know such things. Um, this has nothing to do with the size of the Navy. This has nothing to do with whether we create a post road between Natchez and Nashville. And the public has a right to find out what the, the candidate's outlook is, whether he's a person of general virtue, whether he's essentially honest, uh, and whether he has an articulatable and agreeable vision for this country. But they don't have a right to know whether his children go to public or private school or whether they're Episcopalians or Methodists. Private finances would tell us how much that person gave to a charity, say, or how much they were able to deduct because and what would made... you what, what would you gain from that that would help you with your foreign policy with respect to Ukraine and Russia? I don't I don't know that it would that. So what what's the point of this? Isn't this just a form of invasion of privacy and prurience? Well, we do want to know about these people, but what if they said that they donated money to charity and then we discovered they didn't? Well, then that would, of course, show them to be liars. Uh, but there are other ways to find that out. I mean, on these campuses, here's the difference. We didn't run in my time. Uh, I stayed at Monticello, did virtually nothing, wrote a few polite letters, made it clear that I was willing to be president if it was the will of the country that I be president, but I didn't give speeches. So in, in your time, any candidate by the time of the election has given, what, several thousand speeches and interviews and so on. I mean, surely the public can look at all of that language and determine if the person is essentially honest and factual or not. I suppose there's other ways to distill that, but we think the better we know them personally, the better we can anticipate them publicly. I was in debt all of my life. I would have been embarrassed, I suppose, to have, to have the public looking over my finances, although they might have felt sympathy. You know, when I died... Well, my grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, um, published a three-volume set of my letters, selected letters. And one of my enemies, I mean, and a very severe enemy, John Quincy Adams, the son of my good friend John Adams, read these, these letters and saw the sadness of, of poverty that came to my life after I left the presidency. And he said, I'm no friend to this Jefferson, but it is an appalling thing that we allow men of his greatness to be poor after serving their country in the way that they did. You know, there were no pensions in my time. There was no uh, stipend of any sort for former presidents, no staff. Uh, we couldn't write memoirs with handsome advances or, or give speeches for hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars uh, for corporations. We, we had to be poor and gentlemanly. 
And so I would have been sorry had the public seen my finances, but I'm thinking they probably would have felt deeper sympathy for me. You were really poor? Yes, I was I was bankrupt. I mean, if it hadn't if I hadn't been Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, the former governor of of the Commonwealth of Virginia, I would have been foreclosed upon. I was essentially check kiting for the last 12 years of my life, borrowing from one account to pay off another one. I never had enough money. I was deep in debt, getting deeper in debt. Uh, agriculture had failed in Virginia. I co-signed a note for a friend and he failed to pay and so I was suddenly responsible for a, a gigantic amount of money. Uh, I also was a spendthrift. I, I won't uh, pretend otherwise. I bought much more than I should have in the course of my life but the fact is that uh, I would have been poor even if I had been a better money manager. Did your daughter then inherit your debt? Yes. Well, not debt. Uh, the, after my death, Monticello was sold. The slaves were unceremoniously auctioned to the highest bidder. Uh, my last uh, library, my third library, which I had intended to go to the University of Virginia, had to be sold at auction. Uh, it was a real collapse. The house of cards of my personal economy uh, collapsed utterly uh, at the moment of my death and had only not collapsed before that because I was Thomas Jefferson. And so my daughter, Martha, my only surviving child, actually was desperately poor and a, a, a set of charitable contributions was taken up around the country for her, which was uh, helpful but deeply humiliating. We will, in our next podcast, talk about your love of wine. There's, you are reminding me of this, but there's an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about the detailed records you kept of your wine purchases and what a connoisseur you were of all kinds of wine. But here would have been my advice to you, that after you leave the presidency, you do those things. You write the book. You go speak to whatever Goldman Sachs was back then. You, you could have made fortunes uh, as the not only former president, but, but as you say, the beloved author of the Declaration of Independence. It would have destroyed... My sense of myself, I couldn't have lived with that sort of craven opportunism, and it would have destroyed the country's view of me. You know, we all were living in this myth, uh, the myth of Cincinnatus from uh, the ancient world, that the ideal leader is reluctant and is a gentleman who has no ambition and never calls attention to himself and would rather be on his quiet farm. And so that myth, although important to a republic, uh, and George Washington is the greatest exemplar of it ever. That myth is financially ruinous. But if I had if I had given talks for a large amount of money in my time, say a thousand dollars a talk, uh, the public would have turned on me and said that that Jefferson was an unscrupulous and greedy <laughs> man. Um, well, it helps to die poor. I I I I, I tell you, you're, you're, this is crazy talk. You walk out onto a stage, you say, "It's great to be here." You I could drop. never say that. <laughs> I could do. never. I could never. I could never say, "It's great to be here." I'll be here all week. Please tip your waiter. I, I I'm a man of dignity, John. I I, I know it, it seems strange to you, but I could never go out glibly and. And, and, and trot out from behind the curtain and say, how are you all doing tonight? 